This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Monday, May 18, 2009. I'm Caleb Brown. Those complex financial instruments at the heart of the financial crisis are as yet unregulated, but derivatives themselves help investors decide what risks are acceptable and which are not, and they give powerful signals to others in the market. So says Cato Institute Director of Financial Regulation Studies, Mark Calabria. You know, you and I might have a different opinion over whether this company A is strong and whether they're going to go down. You and I might also have a very different opinion of uh, what the weather cycle is going to look like next summer and whether a lot of hurricanes are a lot. And, you know, our differences in whether there are going to be hurricanes that are going to be strong and make landfall would impact our differences on what we think Allstate, for instance, might be evaluated at. Uh, So a lot of those things enter into you know, people's evaluations of the products and differences, uh, and clearly even outside of one's differences uh, in predicting the value of something and bringing that information to market, there are also very big differences in one's willingness to, to bear that risk. So the greater you're able to parse out those different risks, the more broader and more liquid the markets will be, uh, you know, which overall makes everybody better off and also allows us to basically make, you know, trades across time as well across people. Much of the argument surrounding the regulation of derivatives has to do with this idea that derivatives are not traded out in the open, that they are not, uh, that a shadow banking system has been built up around uh, certain financial products, and there's not a lot of information that uh, is just out there and available. Is that true? Well, in terms of aggregated information, in terms of you know where the contracts are, what they price for, and the characteristics of them, you know, it, it it is largely true that that information is not out in the public domain. But granted, there are lots of information that's not out in the public domain, uh, and that doesn't mean that the incentive for market participants to act on information they have is absent. Uh, I understand the regulators' frustrations that they don't know it all. You know, they'll always be frustrated when, well, we don't really know what's going on. And, you know, if I'm the Treasury Secretary and the President turns to me and asks me something and my answer is, I don't know, I don't look like a very good Treasury Secretary in that instance. So there is a a real push on the part of the regulators as much for their own comfort of knowing what's going on in this market. Uh, And and it is a sort of we need to be on top of things sort of mentality as much as getting that information out there will necessarily make a difference. Um, some of the things you don't want to get out there necessarily is people might not want you to know that you have a certain position in something. I mean, for instance, you know, you have a basically a really common problem in economics called the free rider problem, and that's particularly acute in information. If I have information that I think that the rest of the market doesn't have on a particular firm, whether it's just my own analysis and my own view of something, once I go there, out there and I establish a big position in it, well, there are going to be people who have looked at me and said, well, you know, he's got a pretty good track record. He's a smart guy. He must be right. He must know some. So then I'm going to, they're going to jump on it. And then you undermine the value of me to actually go out there and actually do it if I can't actually maintain my position with some relative anonymity. Um, so I, I do think that the push to kind of have the open uh, disclosure of what everybody's doing on all trades I think it will actually end up discouraging a lot of liquidity and it will discourage the incentives for people to actually bring information, to at least act on information to market. Because the important thing is not necessarily the information itself. The important thing is having people act on that information. The ability to profit from it. You're suggesting that uh, uh, requiring a lot of information to be public 
may put a damper on incentives to uh, use your unique knowledge of time and place to go out and uh, make money. Exactly. If you remove the incentive for people to gather and create information, I mean, you have to have a fundamental question of information generally does not create itself. You know, and, and it really is a difference between your worldview of whether you think that there is just all this information out here you can just take off a shelf and you can just, you know, dissimulate, or whether you believe that information is created anew and knowledge is created anew. And if you believe it's created anew and you believe that uh, it has to be put together in different pieces, well, then you have to have incentives for people to actually do that cre- knowledge creation. It's not going to happen in and of itself, or at least what's a valuable part of the information. You know, there's a real value, for instance, for short sellers to go out there and find out about the failings of a company. Uh, anybody who's tried to go through particularly the financial statements and the off-balance sheet items of a financial institution has probably gotten a headache. I mean, you, you know, a, a lot of bank analysts, a lot of people spend a lot of time doing this. And you have to have a lot of good sense and a lot of good experience trying to figure out what exactly is behind some of these numbers. And if we don't give people the right incentives to actually do that, it won't happen. And I think the one thing that's been clear from where we are is almost all of that information and all the information you got out of the recent bank stress test and all, that was all available to bank regulators. And it's been available to bank regulators. So, you know, I would have a cautionary note that if we're just going to establish a system that relies on somehow the regulators parsing out all of this data and getting all this data and knowing the right thing to do and when to do, we've been trying that. And I think that's been a failure. Essentially, what has uh, Tim Geithner proposed? Well, one thing to keep in mind is uh, he's proposed, he, he has sent out a two-page letter to the to Capitol Hill, and that is his proposal. And his proposal is basically a set of principles about what he wants to do about the derivatives market in general. And that includes not just your typical interest rate swaps, but also your credit default swaps and things like that. Um, there are essentially sort of two prongs to the approach. One is he's really sort of separating derivatives kind of into two buckets. One bucket is this is the standardized contract that you could pull off the shelf that says, you know, if X happens, I I pay you Y, and that people trade pretty regularly. And he would like to see that enter an over-the-counter standardized market where you have a clearinghouse that backs the trades. You have information reported, basically sort of like a New York Stock Exchange for interest rate drops, for instance. So that's really part one of that push. And under underneath that push, which is probably the more problematic, because I would emphasize it's not necessarily a bad thing. It can actually be a very positive thing to have a centralized clearinghouse for derivatives that are standardized. I mean, the New York Stock Exchange provides a lot of information and value to society beyond the trades it just does for its members. And so having a centralized market behind that, you know, can be very helpful. The question is, what kind of regulation do you have put behind it? Uh, What kind of requirements are you going to have put behind it? And, you know, because essentially what we have today is a two-page letter without any details, you know, they're really we, we don't know what way the way going forward is going to be. Uh, we see a constant theme, I think, with this administration that here we have a great idea. We're going to send a two-page letter and then we're going to have the Hill fill in all the details. That really worked really well with the stimulus plan. And I, I think it will work equally well in this instance. The second bucket of, of contracts he's talked about are those that are highly customized that um, – you know, it's not simply X happens, you pay me Y, but it's like, you know, X happens and then Y happens and maybe D happens and then you subtract Z and then you get B. So it's something that's not something you just take off the shelf that people use regularly. And a lot of the contracts in derivatives market are in that manner. Um, 
And because they're not customizable, they're not commodities in the sense that a lot of the other derivatives contracts are, it's a lot harder to sort of just try to clear them. I mean, you are talking comparing oranges to apples. Um, I think this is probably, if it really continues throughout the process of regulatory reform, a wise thing to do. You need to have a release, the release valve. I mean, I do question some of the wisdom and what the regulatory structure might look like for the for the commoditized, standardized products. But you really do need to have a relief relief valve to have people basically, you know, structure their own contracts. You need to allow some innovation and some creativity in that. So I think it's important that the process over that that part definitely stays. Um, but even that, I mean, you know, if we're talking about how you're going to regulate the people who write those contracts and what sort of capital requirements you're going to have against them. Um, you know, those were all things we tried before. I mean, the, the thinking that somehow the regulators weren't keeping an eye on how much capital and collateral Goldman was supposed to have against, you know, derivatives contracts, that's just false. They were already doing that. Now, whether they did it well or not, it's a different question or not, but they were already in place doing that. And clearinghouses aren't very well equipped to uh, deal with very uniquely designed contracts. I mean, that, that's correct. I mean, you know, most of when you go buy a stock in IBM, it is pretty standardized. And so the clearinghouse really is an opportunity to sort of have those backing of trades. And the important thing about a clearinghouse is you're separating out the risk of the issuer of the derivative from the derivative itself. I mean, for instance, in the case of where AIG had written all of these CDS contracts, you know, you asked the collateral to be back behind them if you were a counterparty, not because necessarily that the contract itself might fall apart, but because you felt like when it came time to pay that contract, that AIG wouldn't be there. Now, you don't, one of the problems with a clearinghouse is, you know, do you have sufficient funds to back it? And how does it get back? And how does it get paid? Uh, you know, we had a lot of clearinghouses, you know, that still exist in other markets that have existed in the past. Um, and, you know, a lot of the clearinghouses were there during the Great Depression that bailed people, that backed up trades. But there is a question that if you have a run on something that, you know, what happens, you know, the clearinghouse is in the same position. I mean, the clearinghouse has to have those resources there too. I think, it, and you know, one of the things that concerns me is I think it's far more likely, you know, to see the Federal Reserve step in and back up a clearinghouse than it is to back up any one individual institution. Um, so, you know, there's a risk there that I think that unless it's done right, it could end up probably causing greater risk. But I do think that if it's done right, it can also probably add to liquidity and add to transparency and actually help you separate out the risk of issuer from the instrument itself, which could be positive. So, you know, right now I emphasize again, you know, we have a two-page letter and the devil is really going to be in the details on this. So going forward, I think really looking at how this works, this, this has the potential to do a lot of good or a lot of bad, and it really depends on how it gets structured. Mark Calabria is Director of Financial Regulation Studies at the Cato Institute. Read more of his work at Cato.org.